Genesis chapter 22. Uh, I'll be reading verses 1 through 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your only your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. That's the sentence that turns Harold Crick's life upside down in the 2006 movie Stranger Than Fiction. Has anyone seen that movie? favorite of mine. Uh, In the film, the main character, Crick, played by Will Ferrell, begins hearing a voice narrating his life, which is nothing much to report at the beginning since he's a tax auditor who lives a fairly solitary life. But everything is upended for him when his impeccably scheduled life is thrown off by a, uh, a minute because his watch glitched up and he asked a stranger for the time. Reset it. That's when the narrator distressingly makes this statement. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous event or act would result in his imminent death. Later, an English professor, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, 
uh, initially dismisses Crick as crazy when he tries to talk to him, but agrees to help when Crick shares with him that sentence. Little did he know, that means that there's something he doesn't know, which means there's something you don't know. Did you know that? Life is full of little did we knows. Little events that have big consequences, things we can uh, never expect that end up fully reshaping our lives for good and bad. As we continue on our journey through the book of Genesis this morning, uh, we'll look at a strange event in the life of Abraham and his son Isaac, which little did they know would foreshadow major events. It's easy to get caught up on Abraham's part in this story, by the way. Um, Typically, sermons on this passage end up spending all of their time exploring what this means for Abraham's faith and the promise that's given to him and his response to the whole uh, incident. But we're not really talking about Abraham this morning. The point of this series has been to look at some major figures and kind of what uh, their characterization in the text tells us about um, these real people with real faith lives, something uh, our real God tells us about our real lives, how we can live faithfully. So we're trying to focus on Isaac this morning, his perspective. Isaac really is a pretty fascinating character in Genesis. Um, in the few extended scenes that we get about his life, they're, they're fairly unique. First, there's this long scene describing his arranged marriage to Rebecca. Uh, we read a, a, a children's story version of it earlier, which was much more abbreviated than the long version that we find in Scripture. Also, later, after he marries uh, Rebecca, it turns out that she is barren just like Sarah was, but he prays for her. And she ends up having twins, Jacob and Esau. Like Abraham, he lies to Abimelech in the same way, uh, kind of pretending that uh, his wife, Rebecca, is merely his sister and uh, ends up that it works. He is safe from any possible danger there, and he gets a promise reiterated from God, the same promise that God gave to Abraham. But then his life story gets a little twisty after he and Rebecca start playing favorites with Jacob and Esau, um, their twins. And Isaac's narrative kind of gets totally subsumed under Jacob's narrative as the text moves along. We only later hear about him uh, after it starts talking about Jacob in a brief uh, little uh, verse in Genesis 35, 28 and 29, where it tells us that Isaac died at the age of 180. Compared to his father Abraham and his son Jacob, we really don't get much detail about Isaac's life and his impact. And here, in this event that we read this morning, um, you would think that this is a pretty dramatic and significant event for Isaac, right? but we don't get a ton of insight as to his thought process to the event, his vantage point, what he's actually thinking. But I, I'd suggest there are a few details we can observe from here about this. One, we, we don't know how old Isaac is at this point. We do know that he's old enough to carry all this wood, that he's the one who's carrying the wood for the sacrifice, uh, and old enough to carry on a conversation with his father. We do know that he is not aware of the whole plan here. He asks his father Abraham, where's the sacrifice? He's looking around, he doesn't see one. And so he is not entirely sure what's happening. We also know that his father Abraham does love him deeply. That's both in verse 2 and in verse 16. Uh, describes Abraham at Isaac, Isaac being his, uh, his only son, even though he also has Ishmael, but this is the son of the promise, the son that he has been waiting for for such a long time. We don't know 
to what extent Isaac knows or feels that. We know that Abraham bound Isaac, it says so in verse 9. We don't know whether Isaac resisted at all in that process. You would think, from what we said earlier, him being able to carry the wood and, and all of that, that he might at least be old enough and mature enough to either try and overpower his elderly father at this point or to run away uh, and, and to uh, be faster than him. But we don't really know the dynamics of what all was happening there. So how does he end up tied for an offering? There might be some likelihood that he didn't resist. Maybe, maybe he's seen how badly it's worked out when his dad tried to do things in a different way in the past than what he had heard. Maybe he's been inspired by his father's faith. Maybe he surrenders as well. We also might ask what Abraham was thinking in this. You know, for all of what we can say about Isaac, we do not have to talk about Abraham a little bit. I personally don't think that Abraham was lying to his servants when he tells them in verse 5 that he and the boy will return. He seems to think that. Nor is he lying or, or being uh, disingenuous when he tells Isaac that God will provide a lamb. I think Abraham fully expects that God is going to do something. In Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19, the author of Hebrews seems to indicate that as well. And he says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Brenda has said before, it's a little anachronistic thinking about that, right? But, but apparently uh, the author of Hebrews seems to think that Abraham really believed something was going to happen that would allow he and Isaac to both come back. I've heard it said that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, that it's fear. That doubt is a healthy thing. It's fine to question, right? But, but fear is what can keep us from trusting. To think about that, I think of my kids, uh, my sons in particular, who have a healthy wariness of heights, but are also pretty adventurous with things. And if they're on the stairs or uh, anywhere, you know, near where there's something they can climb on, if I am nearby, near enough, that the father have no problem hurtling themselves off of a height uh, and just trust that I'm going to catch them. I guess so far I have not given them reason to doubt that trust. Uh, given, haven't given them the reason to fear. Um, so their trust of my arms catching them is greater than any doubt they might have about whether or not uh, I would catch them. I have to imagine that both Abraham and Isaac had a amount of doubt in this event, but neither of them seemed to let their fear overcome their faith in the promise. I suggest maybe Isaac even more so than Abraham. Isaac will go through with this. And there's also another clue to this later in Isaac's life. I mentioned it briefly earlier here. When, uh, when his wife, Rebecca, is struggling to have a child, Abraham and Sarah, they go through a whole lot of interesting things to try to solve that problem in, in their marriage. Isaac simply prays for his wife. We never hear that that happens with Abraham. He never prays for Sarah and her, her, her barrenness. But Isaac just prays that. Maybe one takeaway that we can get from here is that in our faith, we can't ask God when things don't seem like they're working out the way that he has promised or the way that, um, that we think it should go. We can ask. In either case, as a result of this event on the mountain, 
God seems to show them a glimpse of the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 56, he's debating with some of the Pharisees um, about his identity, about um, the way he can do miracles and things that are happening and, and how they should think of him. They're talking about Abraham, their, their ancestor, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Glad. What is Jesus talking about here? Many rabbis in Jesus' day probably wouldn't have balked at that statement uh, in itself. Um, they did teach, even at the time, that Abraham had gifts of prophetic insight, including an awareness of the coming Messiah. But what precisely did that look like? Uh, many of them probably would have thought back to the event of Isaac's birth, that uh, Isaac was the long-awaited son of the promise. In the same way, uh, that is a glimpse forward to this long-awaited Messiah would be born. In contrast, though, the New Testament and early church fathers point to this experience on the mountain. By now, I'm sure you've noticed some of the parallel, parallels here. Isaac is identified as Abraham's only son, whom he loves, who will be offered up as a sacrifice on the mountainside. In the Gospels, Jesus is identified as God's only son, whom he loves, who was offered up as a sacrifice so that None should perish, but instead receive eternal life. In Isaac's case, they don't have to go through with it. God stops the action, provides an alternate. God shows Abraham that he is not that kind of God. He doesn't need or require or want human sacrifice. He just wants our hearts. In Jesus' case, Jesus is both the beloved son and the alternate. Both Isaac and the ram in the thicket are types that we see that are foreshadowing Jesus. Where we deserve death, Jesus dies for us. Just like Isaac carried the firewood, Jesus carries the cross that he will be executed on. It is not the Father who demands sacrifice in Jesus' face, but an anxious humanity that demands his death. And the Son willingly submits. But this time the blow isn't stopped. The nails are hammered body lifted up. Humanity proved that we didn't want God's heart. We wanted blood. So God gave us both. He gave his blood and his heart. He gave us our sin and our ignorance. His great love and power overcame the grave and all sin, all hatred, all our bitterness and the violence that came with it. We have been given to I suggest that that is what is foreshadowed in Isaac. Abraham probably thought that he was just being pressed to prove his faithfulness. Little did he know that God used to teach him, bless him, and transform him. God showed Abraham a preview of how his family line would bless all nations. He saw his son willing to give up life. He experienced the pain that God would feel seeing it happen. Would have to feel, feel seeing it happen. He felt our relief and our great gratitude for God's mercy providing a way out. Isaac showed Abraham Jesus. The question for us to reflect on is what does our life 
show to others. This is our example, the experiences that we go through, uh, the way we respond to the events around it. When we experience trial, what does our response teach the world about Jesus? What does it teach us about ourselves? I'll close with a story. Pastor and sociologist Tony Campolo, he, he once rec recounted a great example of uh, this sort of self-sacrificial life of giving, of being an example to others, even when it's difficult. Of uh, This kid who was at a junior high camp, and let me just say this, I share uh, Tony Campolo's feelings about junior high boys in particular, that uh, as individuals, they can be great. When they're in groups, they can be really mean. It's really difficult to spend time with them. Um, and these, the kids at this camp tend, turned out to be really mean. And their meanness was focused in particular on a young kid named Billy. Billy had been born with a whole list of birth defects. He had cerebral palsy. Uh, his brain was unable to exercise proper control over the movements of his body and his speech. The other kids mocked him mercilessly about this, called him spastic. Billy would walk across the grounds of his camp in a disjointed manner, and the others would line up behind him, imitating him and mimicking his every movement. It only got, got worse as the week went on. The level of meanness reached its lowest point on Wednesday morning when Billy's cabin had been assigned to morning devotions. A camp of about 150 kids. All of the boys in his cabin had voted for Billy to be the speaker. They knew he would struggle with it. They just wanted to get him up there so they could mock him and laugh at him. They thought it would be funny to watch him to try to deliver this uh, devotional talk. And as an adult leader, uh, Compo Tony Compolo was just seething in anger. He didn't want to break Billy's heart by telling him he couldn't do it or he was nominated, but he also just had a sense for where this was going. They didn't want to see him go through this, this bullying. As little Billy got up and out of his seat, he limped his way to the platform, and you could hear the mocking laughter already beginning, the sneering going to the group. But Billy didn't stop. He took his place at the podium and he started to speak. And for almost 10 tortured minutes, he only got out about 10 words, three sentences. And this is what he said. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. And when he finished, there was dead silence. These kids who had first been laughing and mocking him turned from laughter to silence to convicted. They were just crying. They're all over the place. A revival broke out at the camp. And many kids turned their lives over to Jesus after this. I don't know what it is that any of us are going through this morning, but I do know this. That Jesus loved us. He loves you. He gave his life for you so that we can also give up our lives. No matter what test or trial is in our way, you don't have to fear because he is with you. He has overcome the grave, and there's nothing that we need to be afraid of. Saves away. Do we trust him? Lord, we thank you for the gift that you have given us. We thank you for your word. 
thank you for your covenantal relationship with all of us, with humanity, in and out throughout the ages. That you have uh, again and again and again made covenants and promises and uh, and entered into our broken world. That you have guided us in ways that are sometimes really difficult to understand. And yet showed up and revealed yourself in ways that point us to profound truth. Help us to know you more. We thank you ultimately for your revelation. Jesus is coming to be among us. To, to show us, to guide us. To show us the fullest extent of your love. Your life on the cross. By speaking a word of forgiveness. By creating for us a chance of new life. By gifting us with your Holy Spirit. You reconcile me. Have your spirit dwell within us, Lord. It is such an unthinkable gift right? So, Lord, we thank you. We say, come, Lord Jesus. To be more and more present in our lives. To draw our eyes to you.